Hi and welcome to the Digital Accessibility Podcast with me, your host, Joe James. Throughout this series, I will be interviewing professionals who work within the space to share their expertise, journeys and general thoughts on the key issues facing the industry today. My aim is to provide an in-depth look into the world of digital accessibility and the impact it has on the lives of anyone who interacts with digital technology. Our goal is to bridge the skills gap in the current market and inspire others to join the movement towards a more accessible digital world. So whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, I hope that this platform will provide you with valuable insights and practical advice from experts and advocates in this extremely important community. Today, I'm joined by Craig Abbott, previous Head of Accessibility at the Department for Work and Pensions, and now Senior Designer working with Elastic. Elastic help organisations, their employees and customers scale mountains of data with their powerful analytics and visualisation tools. Um, Craig's had a fruitful career starting out in design and development, moving into accessibility leadership and going full circle into senior designer role again uh, to ensure accessibility is considered at all stages of the software development lifecycle. So Craig, welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, really looking forward to it. Um, I think just before we start, I should point out it's hay fever season, so I'm going to be rubbing my eyes a lot and there's probably going to be a cat will appear at some point. So I'm going to apologize <laughs> for that off the bat. Just to help with the allergies, that's the thing. I mean, so I've actually got two cats as well, and um, I've always been allergic to cats, but my fiance said she couldn't live in a house without cats, so we compromised and got some cats. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all good. Um, but yeah, so I guess we'll dive in. Um, I hope the intro was fairly accurate. Um, I know that you've recently moved roles, um, but I just, yeah, I guess first question, what was the motivation for that move? Yeah, um, so I left DWP at the end of 2022. I've been Elastic for about, God, yeah, about six months now, um, which seems like it's flew over really quickly, to be honest. But yeah, six months. Um, the uh, the intro, yeah, uh, fairly accurate. I mean, Elastic are a, predominantly a search company. They've they've been known for search for the last sort of ten years. Um, Elastic Search is used on all sorts of stuff because it can uh search massive data sets kind of in real time but they are working on a security product so i that's what i work on um we're looking at being able to search through massive amounts of data to kind of find cyber security threats and that kind of thing so they've only been in the search sort of arena for the last few years the product's still quite new but yeah that's what i'm working on um i think the main motivator for leaving dwp in my last role as head of accessibility uh I think if I'm totally honest, it was just the stress. Um, like everyone that I know that's working in the accessibility industry is burned out. Mm. Um, I had worked for government for seven years. I was the head of accessibility for almost three. Um, and I, I just got to the point where I, I felt like it was the right time to move on. Um, I feel like I did a lot of good work there, but it got to the point where I think the organization was starting to impact me more than I felt like I could impact the organization, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think it just felt like the right time. It felt like somebody else needed to come in and take over and uh, have a renewed energy because I was just really tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, yeah, right time to move on sort of thing. Like you've done some amazing work there. I know you made a, you did make a huge impact. I know you have, because I've spoken to a lot of people that are aware <laughs> of the work you've done. Um, but yeah, and um, I know we spoke previously, uh, sort of before the show about, um, who's replaced you and it's someone that you've worked with and it's, it's it's nice to sort of I guess you've moved on and opened up that space for someone to come in and yeah and, uh, so Nikki Berry took on uh, the role after I left um, and I was really pleased to see Nikki go into that role um, she's great she worked um, well we worked together for about a year before I left mm -hmm. um, so we originally hired us as senior accessibility specialist and then when I left um, she she sort of stepped into my role but yeah I was really pleased to see Nikki get that she's she's great I probably left a lot sooner if it wasn't for Nikki to be honest oh well that's really good and it's nice to know that it's sort of it feels like you've not just done all of that work and then just walked away from it I feel like you're probably you'll 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 know that Nikki will sort of look after what you've sort of put yeah, in place sure. amazing so I mean seven years wow working within the public sector um I think yeah when you're pushing for change and you're really trying to sort of maybe bring people up to date 
um that's enough to sort of make anyone go a bit mad i think because it's, <laughs> it, it goes so slowly um so how did you manage it and and you mentioned burnout so you obviously did experience that and that and that sort of frustration throughout your years there um yeah i mean i think i think <laughs> i think in all honesty i was just in a perpetual state of burnout um oh. over the three years that i was in that role i think there was a there was a definite bell curve of impact so to speak like you know there was a a lot of impact in a short amount of time and then i kind of peaked and i think towards sort of the last year or so that kind of fell off um the, the impact definitely slowed down over time I, I think a lot of that is probably my own doing um i put myself out there a lot i'd kind of offered as much support as i could you know i was doing talks workshops we ran accessibility clinics um i guess i felt the more that i showed that i was approachable the more stuff that I could help get over the line, the more things would be accessible. Um, but I guess it was probably a bit naive in hindsight because what actually happened was uh, I just kind of got crushed under the pressure. I mean, at one point I was one person in an organization of about 100,000 people. Um, and everyone suddenly thought that I had all the answers. So all the quick calls and can you just quickly have a look at this? And can we just quickly loop you into this thing that we're doing? Like it all adds up. Um, and I guess I never wanted people to feel like they didn't feel supported. Um, I didn't want people to sort of use it as an excuse and say, well, we, you know, we reached out to the head of role and we got no response or whatever. So I kind of get pulled into calls and CC'd into hundreds of emails and sent documents and websites to review. And of course it was always marked as urgent because everyone leaves accessibility at the last minute. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was pretty much just on back to back calls for my entire working day. And then in the evenings, I was having to do all of the actions off the back of those calls. And it got to the point where I was pretty much averaging about 60 or 70 hours a week, which just isn't sustainable for everyone, for anyone really. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess to answer your question, uh, I'm not sure that I did deal with the frustrations. I think I just kept going until I couldn't anymore. So uh, yeah, I definitely don't recommend people do it the way that I did it. But I think, so yeah, I mean, it's a mate oh, it's, it's hard to really sort of put my finger on it but i think it's when you've got that title it almost added an additional amount of pressure it's already pressure involved because you but you're the face of it within the organization you're the head of accessibility so you're the go-to guy and you see that in the uk especially I, I feel um people i speak to across the board they are pretty much employing one person and then don't have the budget or don't have the ability to grow their team out so then delegate that work and then there will be more support so I guess it's just unfortunately I feel that that's the way that it's done quite broadly across different sectors as well um, yeah I, I think I definitely took a lot of responsibility for stuff that wasn't my responsibility um mm. I kind of had this idea that it would reflect badly on me as the head of accessibility if a service was out in the wild and it wasn't accessible so I guess in some cases nobody else was really taking responsibility for stuff so I felt like I had to but you, you can't be responsible for everything in an organization that large um again in hindsight no exactly but um and then within that just to lump this on top as well because we're on the subject of that sort of <laughs> burnout mental health and struggling through the role did you did you we've spoken about imposter syndrome me personally on the show before um but also just within the accessibility profession and did you get a sense of that because you had that head of role yeah um yeah imposter syndrome uh yeah all the time um imposter syndrome is something i've talked about in the past um my you know i'm good friends with gavin elliott who has toured the country given talks on imposter syndrome um it's really common i think in a lot of digital roles i think in accessibility it was amplified because it's it's so it was so new i think in the department and it was um, something that, you know, I, I was a designer that sort of looked at accessibility. I, I took it on in my spare time, but I was very much a designer and um, I did talks on it and I did a whole bunch of stuff in my spare time to kind of drive that agenda forward. I and mean, then suddenly I'd, I'd found myself in this role where suddenly I was now responsible for all this stuff. Um, so I did kind of feel out of my depth quite a bit, I think. Um, and I think a lot of the burnout we just spoke of can probably be attributed to that imposter syndrome. The fact that I always took on too much. Um, I think as my, my role developed, 
what became apparent was my responsibility was very much a strategic role. It was, you know, form a strategy, uh, educate, try and change the culture of the organization, hire the right people in to do that stuff. And if I did all of that stuff, then compliance, I guess, should have taken care of itself. But that's really slow. Um, so I guess on I was doing all of that stuff, but then on an evening, I was still kind of rolling my sleeves up and doing accessibility audits and testing things with screen readers and writing documentation and those sorts of things. Because I guess I was worried if there wasn't a noticeable improvement with me in that role, then I'd look incompetent or they wouldn't see the value in the role or they wouldn't see the value in accessibility. So there was this real, um, I guess there was this real sense of urgency from me to try and prove the value of this, which... Um, when when you've got that weight on your shoulders the imposter does kind of perk up and start saying some things mm. i think i think another thing which is probably worth mentioning is um like the web content accessibility guidelines or wcag or wcag or whatever you want to call it I'll they're great my captions later by the way craig so thank you What's that? No, that's it. Spelling it out like that's going to be great for the captions. Oh. The later, so thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, people call it all sorts. I always call it WCAG, and then some people don't know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, WCAG, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is great. And, and it's worth, you know, that is a that is the takeaway point. Like, I fully believe in the guidelines and what they're for, but there are a lot of gray areas in that. You, you can think something's a fail, somebody else can disagree and you have this back and forth and sometimes there's kind of no right answer. Like a, a really good, I guess, real world example is um, DWP had this service called, tell us your patient is terminally ill, I think it was called, um, but it allowed doctors to fast track patients through the benefit system. So if you were terminally ill, obviously every second matters and you get access to financial support quicker. The form itself that they had to fill in was called a DS-1500. I think it's called an SR1 form now, uh, but it was called a DS-1500 at the time. Don't ask me what the acronyms mean. I've got no idea, um, which probably highlights the problem. But yeah, the what happened with that situation, I guess, to, to bring it back to accessibility, the doctors knew this form as a DS-1500 and the NHS called it a DS-1500 and the DWP staff called it a DS-1500. But unless you had direct experience of a DS-1500, this is going to be great for your captions later. It's going to be taking the walls off. But yeah, it just didn't make any sense unless you were in that industry. So of course, I did a WCAG review um, or an audit. I had zero kind of context as that. And I, pil I pulled it up because links and headings just said DS1500 and I said it didn't describe topic or purpose. Yeah. And there was a lot of pushback. You know, they were saying, well, actually, in our research, it shows that when we tried to change the name and say something else like your patient is terminally ill form or something. People just didn't understand what it was. They were looking for a DS-1500. Um, and, you know, that's, that's perfectly valid, perfectly valid, I suppose, but I didn't have that context. Um, so, of course, people were, you know, saying, well, you know, you you failed this and, and it's not a fail and, uh, you know, there's all of these sorts. So you can find yourself in situations, I guess, where you doubt yourself. You you think you know WCAG, you think you know accessibility, and you just don't always have the context. And WCAG by its very definition is just guidelines and somehow it's become a legal standard and there's no right or wrong answer sometimes and it can really be quite tricky um but yeah so that that's that also I think affects imposter syndrome is when people are telling you you're wrong and you can't really prove you're right but uh yeah for the for the record I still think DS1500 is a stupid and accessible name for a form but here we are I think everyone that listens to this will be in agreement with you. <laughs> some doctors that listen in, who knows? But um, and that, so from that perspective, is it that that was an internally used um, sort of acronym or or code for that particular form, or would that be members of the public that would have to ask for that form to? So the, so members of the public didn't touch it. It was um it was a form which the doctor filled in, and then that came into government and then kind of fast tracked through by being attached to somebody's sort of benefit claim. Um, so it it was industry language and thankfully the public didn't have to kind of deal with it but mm -hmm. um yeah it wasn't dwp specific it kind of was uh, the nhs also kind of used that term but um yeah I i'd like to have seen them try to use different language and phase it out and eventually get the form to be called something which did make sense but that wasn't really in my remit that wasn't what i was there to do and uh, mm -hmm. whether it could be done or not i don't know because people yeah. kind of get set in their ways of what they call things it's the whole change management side of it as well, isn't it? And that's it's just sort of it's the awareness because I can think of a, a, a number of reasons why you would need to have that 
as clear, simple language. You know, there's many doctors out there that have their own potential cognitive, um, you know, needs, but also um, if it's a new doctor, you know, the NHS is struggling to get staff. Right. So you've got someone in that's not worked within that. They don't know the acronyms. They're going to think, well, what do I search for? And if they, you know, they won't know that acronym, but it's, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm I'm in full support of, uh, of the change of the name of that of that silly document, but um, and it's so important as well. It's just uh, you know to think that it's for someone that's terminally ill. It's um, crazy, um, and unfortunately, I mean, it's not really something that I've spoken about too much. But uh, my fiance was diagnosed with leukemia in November last year, and um, we've had to go through that whole rigmarole of you know the insurance documents, but also working through the NHS, who have been fantastic, by the way. So just want to put that out there as well that you know we've been really fortunate with our journey through. Um, dealing with that but being someone in that position you don't want any you don't want to hear about things behind the scenes that may you know um, impact you uh, financially yeah. physically you know uh, impacts on treatment and stuff so it just shows you just how important it's not just the audio and visual side of accessibility there's things such as that headers names of documents and you know the storage but yeah, yeah I digress but um, thank you for trying trying your best to get it changed um, <laughs> But then, sorry, to, to go back onto the um, imposter syndrome side of that, you know, um, and circle it back around, um, it's really interesting that you say that because obviously if you've only got guidelines to refer back to and there's no sort of set standard, like this is exactly, you know, I, the reason I'm trying to make this change is X, you can't argue with that, but you can yeah. argue with guidelines because they just think it's an opinion. Um, yeah, I, I think with that's always been a frustration, I think, with the with things like accessibility audits and whatnot, like there's uh this sort of there's this idea that you can check something and it's a binary answer like you can look at it and go yep that meets the criteria that doesn't but a lot of it's human readable things it's like do your links make sense do your headings make sense the things that are binary like you can you can definitely look at some of those things like is your html semantic are you using a heading level two when you should be using a heading level three or something like that but for a lot of the human readable stuff, it does become a gray area and two people can audit the same website and decide one can pass it, one can fail it, just depending on what their context is of the service. So I think the fact that they are guidelines, like I'm not even sure if W3C who wrote WCAG ever intended it for to be written into legislation, which I think does sometimes complicate things. But I think, yeah, it's it's definitely better to have it in there. I'd rather I'd rather people pushed back and had a valid reason for pushing back than to just accept everything. I think that's an, that, that's a really good example of accessibility maturity. I think that was one of the ways that I was trying to measure some of the stuff. Um, so we had some objectives um, and some key results. And one of the things that I was looking for was constructive sort of pushback. Uh, a lot of the time, if I said something failed in audit, everyone just went, okay, tell me how to fix it. But if somebody's saying, actually, we don't we don't think that it is a failure, and here's the reasons why, that shows a level of progression where they're now starting to understand, they're now starting to look at the guidelines themselves, and they're starting to assess their service against the guidelines, and they've come to a different conclusion than me because they've perhaps got more context. So it's not always a bad thing, I think, when people push back. But I think in in the early days, if somebody pushed back and said, we don't think it's a fail, you know, imposter syndrome or whatnot, I just uh, panic. Yeah. But it's interesting. So last week, actually, I was speaking to Kevin White of the W3C. Um, so we're going to be going uh, PCR Digital, going to be attending Accessibility Scotland, which is another thing that he's oh, awesome. curates. Um, and um, well, we're going to be sponsoring it as well, which is another great thing to announce on the podcast. But um, he he was actually saying it's, it's really interesting um, mentioning W3C anyway, because obviously he's had a hand in in developing and, and continuously developing those guidelines, because I don't think there's ever going to be a full stop like mm -hmm. the web's always changing digital, you know, the types of platforms that we use. Um, but he said the fundamentals of a lot of what he's done as a consultant is actually reteaching people how to use word which is like the headings like you were just mentioning and, it, and it's it's amazing how you know as a recruiter i'm looking for people with all of these different skills you know knowledge of the book guidelines of different you know section 508 or any you know all the other sort of regulations globally um, as well as html coding experience design experience user you know user-centered or human-centered design um but actually it's the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes and see things through or 
have that empathy, I think, as well. So it's it's you know there's always going to be those blurred lines. But I'm rambling. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I, but I guess as I've mentioned, being a recruiter and um, um, I, I get I think I probably actually approached you um initially to work with you when you're at the DWP or possibly to poach you for a different role um <laughs> but something I'd uh, I'd really be interested to understand from your perspective because obviously you were hiring people to join your team like you said um has there been like a key skill or something that you would look for within someone's profile through the um the sort of interview process when you're getting to know candidates a bit better um is there a, it would I'd love to know if there's a hidden gem is there one thing that you're like yep that, that identifies a great candidate ah <laughs> uh, no pressure <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good question i think the hesitancy uh the hesitancy comes from the fact that when you were saying that my brain went resilience mm. and before i guess that's if that's not something that i've perfect personally looked for in a candidate but it's something that i hear a lot they want a resilient person um, I'm not going to use that as my answer. I, I don't want to say that that's something we should be looking for. I mean, right now you do need to be super resilient to work in accessibility. Like I was resilient for a while and then I just got crushed by the machine, so to speak. Oh. Um, and I guess I, I, I hate that we have to be resilient. Like why do we live in a world where that's celebrated? Um, your resistance to being crushed day in, day out isn't something that organizations should be looking for in a candidate. Like we should be looking for how we change the world around us so that people don't need to be resilient in order to do a good job. So that was the word that came to mind, but I, I don't want to use that as my answer. I think that I just kind of sidetracked and went on a bit of a rant there. So um, <laughs> I think in all honesty, like passion and enthusiasm is probably the thing that I think makes a great candidate, um, especially in accessibility, because so few people are enthusiastic about it at all accessibility is often just kind of seen as a um, like a technical requirement or a checkbox exercise. It's like a skill to acquire like HTML or CSS or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but when you find somebody who really cares about accessibility and what it represents and the people that are behind it, then I think that's something you need to grab a hold of because a lot of people can learn the technical skills, but not everybody can learn how to um, how to believe in a cause with every fiber of their being, so to speak. Um, and I think that's what's going to change the culture of an organization or society as a whole. It's not being able to recite WCAG 2.1 word for word. It's having that passion and that enthusiasm to, to keep going at something which is really difficult, um, but is fundamentally important for a lot of people. And it, yeah, that's really encouraging to hear you say that because, um, you know, the work that I do, speaking to so many people that have potentially potentially had experience within accessibility in a role that you know actually utilizes those skills and that knowledge and that passion um or those that haven't had the opportunity yet but potentially can recite WCAG 2.1 you know because they're that passionate they've gone oh I want to know it word for word but um you know it's it's reassuring that I speak to so many people more so now uh like this this year onwards that have got a genuine passion but they're just looking for a ways in um and i love to see that counterbalance because it's it's usually been we don't know anyone with these experience the, you know these skills or this experience because they haven't had the opportunity elsewhere because it isn't funded within an organization yeah. the company isn't spending the money um on accessibility because they see it as oh it's just a nice to have um but now i'm starting to see an uptick in the people that are interested have gone out of their way. They're spending their own personal time on learning a bit more about accessibility. I think it's that empathy and that mindset as well, isn't it? I think it's yeah. just you need to sort of actually care. I was about to swear, but you 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 need to just care about it and think for think about other people rather than oh I can develop a, a platform. I'm going to develop it so that it works for me. But you're just yeah. discounting so many people. Um, so yeah, that's great. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Keep looking for people with passion and keep the conversation flowing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it is such a large topic. And I, I mentioned earlier, it's not just the sort of audio and visual side of things. And like, can you read this on a on a web page or can you enlarge this text? Um, there's so many different areas to cover and consider. So like the compliance, um, awareness, raising awareness, so like something like this podcast or the learning and development, putting in e-learning within your company, implementation, development, design, it's just never ending. So that 
there's a question. There is one. I promise. Um, is do you feel that working in the accessibility space feels you've got that pressure to where you're like the YMCA? You know, um, you've got to wear so many different hats and different costumes. Um, it's so complex. Um, you know, and dedicated accessibility teams within companies just aren't commonplace in the UK market. There is just like it's you. You've got to wear so many different hats and cover all areas. Yeah, I didn't know where you were going with that question for a second. I was like, I'm either kind of Yeah, I think in short, yes. Um, I think what I have observed is that accessibility is normally just a, it's another hat that somebody else wears a lot of the time. It's a secondary skill attached to other roles. So uh, you might be a front end developer, you might be a QA tester, and you might know a bit about accessibility. So you end up putting the accessibility hat on in your team um, and sort of trying to make sure that you do all of this stuff. But it's always a secondary hat. The, the one that you wear most of the time is your day job, you know, develop a hat or QA hat or whatever it might be. Um, and then you kind of have to pick the accessibility stuff up as well because there's so few roles that are accessibility specific. But I think when it comes to accessibility specific roles as well um like accessibility as a specialism is still an emergent practice an emergent practice um people don't realize how hard it is and they don't know what they need in their organization they don't know what accessibility as a specialism looks like in their organization because it might be different in different organizations there's just kind of this blanket approach of we need somebody for accessibility and they look at everything that entails and they get sign off to hire one person. So they put all of that stuff in the job role. And then even as an accessibility specialist, you're not specializing in one area, you're specializing in accessibility, which is as broad as any other sort of discipline out there. So I guess like not all accessibility specialists are the same, like some are super technical on the website of things. Some, as you mentioned earlier, spend more time fixing documents and PowerPoint presentations and those sorts of things, completely different skill sets. Some accessibility specialists will tell you how high a grab rail needs to be or how steep the ramp in your building is allowed to legally be to be compliant. They might not do anything with web accessibility, but again, they're still an accessibility specialist. It's just in a different uh, area of the industry. So they're kind of expecting one person to do all of this stuff. You know, you're expected to know HTML, CSS, JavaScript, ARIA, WCAG 2.1, legislation, the Equality Act, public sector bodies, accessibility regulations, then you might need to know European legislation, like EN 301549, which is hilariously inaccessibly named, by the way, or you mentioned earlier, Section 508, like US regulations, you don't even work in the US, but you might have to know the legislation for that, because that can just go in the job, uh, the job <laughs> role as well. Uh, screen readers, voice controllers, screen magnifiers, some I've seen where you've got to know, like how to use braille readers, You've got to know how to perform audits for the web, perform audits for mobile, which again is completely different. Manage stakeholders, manage up, manage down, train new starters, write documentation, do procurement, do strategy, do recruitment. And yeah, the list goes on. Uh, and I guess the, the other thing that's super frustrating about this is they'll put all that stuff in the job advert and then they expect someone to do it for the salary. That's only half that of a front end developer. Like there's very little value placed on accessibility specialists. Most of the roles that we see go out are that of what is normally a junior developer. So you've got an accessibility specialist who has to check front end developer code and tell them why it's broken and tell them how to fix it. And the developer's getting paid twice the salary. It's it's just crazy. Like the, there's a lot of organizations that just don't seem to see the value in what people do and they ask for the world and give very little in return. And I think that needs to change. Um, but yeah, I think to, to circle back to the question, I think, uh, sorry again for going off on a bit of a rant, but. I think at least for a while, anyone who works in accessibility or in a role that's closely attached to accessibility will be wearing multiple hats until accessibility matures as a practice, I think. Absolutely. I think you're, you're bang on. And I mean, I've done some hiring. There's a huge tech giant that I work for. Can't say the name for legal reasons. It's within yeah. our contracts. Um, and I, I help them to hire um, mobile accessibility specialists. And at times, throughout the, the interview or the pre-screening when I'm talking to candidates about the role, there are times where people will say, why would I, why would I do this? As, as, as passionate as I am about accessibility, why would I drop my daily rate or um, my salary by that much when it 
on paper looks like a glorified QA role when I'm yeah. used to being hands-on with coding 24-7. And if I'm not, then I'll lose those skills because I, and I've spent 10 years gaining those skills. So it's it's a constant battle. But I think, like you say, I, I don't think we can put a blanket title on things like that. I think it's no. that's where I struggle when I've got job specs for every single different type of company that might be hiring accessibility people. Yeah. It has to be accessibility slash the role you know and it's it's annoying that it is that but it's it, i think it's better to do that so that you've got things people that are covering in those specialist areas rather than just there's this one blanket person yeah i guess in a head of kind of role maybe you can say you've got the oversight because you've had you've dipped your toe in all of those but you you're, you're more the overseer rather than you know everything's going to get pushed to you yeah. you know so yeah for but, sure yeah. i think um i think in time and this is this is based on nothing but a hunch and kind of my own experience, so I might be completely wrong. But I think in time, accessibility specialist, although it's an emerging practice, I think it'll probably diverge. I think it'll split. Like we used to have webmasters, and then that split into various roles. And even you know we had UX designers, and now we have interaction service content. We've got all these different types of things. I imagine at some point. Accessible. I'd like to see it get to the point where accessibility, you know, you could specialize in different things. You could be a document accessibility specialist. You could be a web accessibility specialist. You could be, you know, somebody that is a policy accessibility specialist. I think it's, it isn't, it isn't a role in itself. I think it is, um, sorry, it is a role in itself, but I think it's not a, a blanket specialism in itself. I think there's various other, other elements to it and you can't specialize in them all because there's just too much. It's like trying to be an entire digital team on your own just isn't really feasible. I was gonna I was gonna liken it to saying that you're a developer and then you actually mostly use sort of JavaScript or JavaScript frameworks and people are saying, Oh, here's a .NET job, go and do that. Yeah. It's like, well actually I don't I don't you know, the syntax is completely different. But actually you get polyglot developers. So that's not even a fair comparison. It's actually like you say, a whole digital team in one person. Um you know, I mean, if you're yeah. compensated for the price of a full digital team, well, yeah, maybe exactly. you give it a go. Exactly. I think if, if you specialize in, if you're doing the job of three or four people, why aren't you getting paid to do it, I suppose? Yeah, no, exactly. But um, I guess that's also where my job comes in as a recruiter, because I'll get the spec, I'll understand it from the hiring manager, I'll make sure I know exactly what area of accessibility they, you know, this person might need to be focusing on. Um, it's hard because, like you say, usually it's, we've got the budget for one person, mm. I want them to do everything. I try and make that make it very clear that that's just not going to happen. You're going to get people that are more leaning towards one sort of area of, yeah. of the space. And then it's my job to pick out, oh, they work mostly in PDF accessibility rather than web or, you know, um, yeah. so it's hard because I've, I've, I've been told I'm the only person in the UK market focusing on accessibility recruitment. <laughs> Maybe that's a silly thing for me to do, but I'm, you know, I'm hoping to make a change there as well. Can, so. can you put can you put the salaries on the job roles? That really bugs me when you view a job role and then it doesn't tell you the salary just is competitive. Is that a thing? Am I allowed to ask you that? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So so that's, it's, I mean, so we get, we get requests from certain clients to say, we don't want to put, because internally it may be seen, you know, internally we know that our other developers know they use PCR Digital to hire. And if I'm not mentioning who the client is, they can probably work it out by the, the layout of the job spec or what they're describing their need. Um, and that's usually to protect and make sure there's not like a precedent set or people are aware of other people's salaries when they join that team. Mm. So that's the only re that's the only sort of viable reason I've I've sort of potentially agreed in the past to not put a salary on. If it's a contract role, it's always the daily rate or a range of daily rates is always there depending on the seniority. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I think that's, it makes the job more accessible because then you're just like, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't apply if I knew it was yeah. 20 grand less than I'm used to earning. Um, yeah. Well, I, so, think, yeah. I think with accessibility as well, because, because the job role is so bloated, you're like this, this must be like, you know, 150 grand a year for what they're asking here. And then you're like, well, should I apply? And then it turns out it's 32 so you wouldn't have been applying in the first place, would you? So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, completely fair to ask. And um, I'll make sure that that's what I do um, in moving forward. So if there's any future clients that are listening to this, <laughs> then we're going to have to put the job spec, the, the salaries on the job specs if you're working with us. There you go. Commitment. Um, so in, in that sort of realm of things, how has your experience been in job hunting and the sort of interview process? Um, was there anything in particular that you think might help 
make that process, the interview process, more accessible um, for those that may have additional needs or, or any form of sort of disability or anything? Yeah, um, that's a good question again. Uh, difficult, I think. I think for me personally, um, I guess for, for transparency, I mean, I, I talk about this regularly anyway, so um, it's not probably that big of a secret, but I guess for, for transparency, like I'm diagnosed with ADHD, and there's also a really good chance that I'm autistic. I'm not kind of pursuing a diagnosis for autism, but it's pretty evident that I have a lot of the traits. So it's, I find interviews a bit of a nightmare on many levels. I think a lot of the interviews that I've done in the past few years have been in government and there's a very, there's a very rigid process. There's a very, um, almost a gamification to the way that it's done. Like they, you know, there's a set, a certain set of behaviors and the behaviors are all documented in a book somewhere. And there's a certain set of skills and you're kind of told what behaviors you're going to be mapped against. And then you can try and figure out how to shoehorn all of your examples to fit the behaviors. And the whole thing's a little bit, um, strange, but I, I guess in more recent interviews, um, obviously, you know, I've only been in this role for six months. So I was kind of doing some interviews at the back end of last year and I do get really anxious around the uncertainty. I think, I think that's the biggest thing for me. I'm fine with bad news. I'm fine with good news. The uncertainty is what kind of kills me. And I think recruitment processes are super opaque. Like job adverts are huge. They're difficult to process. A recruiter always wants to have a chat, but doesn't necessarily set an agenda or tell you what to expect from that chat. Not saying you do that by any way. I'm not bashing recruiters, but there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, oh, you know, you just want to have a chat. And I'm like, yeah, well, what about like about the job? But what are you going to ask me? So that is, I guess, a bit nerve wracking. Um, and sometimes now there's like three or four interviews and you have interviews with different people at different stages. You might have an interview with a recruiter Then you know, I was going for design roles. So you'd have an interview with a designer or two, and then you'd have an interview with somebody else. And I guess like, it's not always clear what the differences are either. So I assume when I'm talking to the designer, I'm going to be talking about design work. I'm going to be asked about things that I do as a designer work sort of way I work and that sort of thing. But like, what about the other three interviews? If I've got to have an interview with somebody from HR or whatever, what are they going to ask me? What do I need to prepare for that? Um, it's it's not always clear. So one of the things which, um, so I mentioned Nikki Berry before, when me and Nikki did some recruitment at the back end of 2022, we were doing some recruitment for two accessibility specialists. And one of the things which we worked really hard to remove was some of that uncertainty. So one of the things which worked really well was sending the questions out ahead of time um because it's civil service we we were met with quite a bit of resistance like people didn't want me to send the questions like they were the exact questions we were going to be it wasn't like oh you'll be asked about these things it was like we will ask you verbatim these questions um and people in the department seemed convinced that if people had the questions they'd somehow cheat the interview like they'd somehow fabricate entire examples to meet them sort of uh questions which in reality wasn't true, but we ended up, we ended up getting, we, we, we ended up doing it in the end, but there was a bit of a compromise where they said, okay, well, you can send them out ahead of time, but they have to be time boxed. So um, we ended up sending them out an hour before. So every candidate one out, they were told ahead of time, that's when they'd receive the questions. So they knew to look in their inbox um, an hour before the interview. And we dispatched them questions one hour before, which gave them time to, I guess, just to read over the questions and know what to expect. But it wasn't so much time that they could overthink it and prepare really scripted answers. Uh, and we did find that people were much more relaxed. There was a noticeable change in the first half of an interview. Normally the first half's quite difficult and then people settle into it and they get better towards the end of the interview. We found that people were much more relaxed coming in. They gave a better account of themselves off the bat just because they knew what we were going to there was no surprises and i think they had time to kind of work out which examples they were going to use for each question and, and it just became a much more um rather than putting them on the spot and getting them to pull examples off the top of their head it was just that everything flowed a bit easier and they were more relaxed and they gave better answers and, and it, it worked a lot better for us so i think another thing Sorry, I'm, I'll wrap this up in a second, but I no, think something else has just came came to uh, my mind, which is one of the things I don't think that people take into account all of the time is when you're hiring accessibility specialists, 
often the special the people that apply for them roles are people that rely on things being accessible like in a world where accessibility maturity is low the experts that are out there are often the people who've had to learn it out of necessity rather than because it's a career that's going to be fruitful so to speak so when you are doing interviews and you get people applying for roles a lot of the people who apply actually rely on that accessible um they rely on things being accessible so making the interview process as inclusive as possible and making as many adjustments that you can to accommodate those people in their role is in the best interest of everyone if you've got a rigid interview process people like me i guess who have adhd or autism or whatever um might not give a good account of themselves because of that uncertainty and you're going to end up in a situation where you're just hiring people who again don't necessarily rely on accessibility to do those accessibility roles and that lack of diversity means that you're probably not going to get to the right outcome so i think making everything as inclusive as possible means you are more likely to get people um you're more likely to get the people into those roles who who, who you want in definitely and have that experience as well like you said i think including people with lived experience within the accessibility process is is a necessity and then yeah. i've had people that have come to me hiring managers that have said oh we might have a need for some some UX researchers with lived experience, can you do that rather than find us the, the specialists? And I'm like, but why aren't your specialists, why don't some of your specialists or some of your team have that lived experience? Because then it's ingrained in your processing. Mm. Um, but yeah, so just a bit of a, I just want to make sure that people are aware that I do make sure that if I can get the interview questions, I send them out. I try and I, I always ask for reasonable accommodations. Um, uh, before interviews are even scheduled. If anyone needs any any sort of adjustments um, made, then I'll make sure make sure that's the case. Um, even when it comes to sort of the podcast. So it's nice that I managed to send you a few questions outlined what we'd be talking about and then you come back with your answers. So it wasn't even I mean, I hope it helped you, but it also really helps me to sort of keep that going because this is a new thing still for me. And it's, it's you know, it just helps me yeah. to keep that conversation flowing. I know we had a chat for over an hour before, like last year, I think it was, but um, or it might have been the beginning of this year, losing track of time because um, <laughs> I talked so much. Um, and, I, you know, and it was just it flowed. So, uh, you know, maybe I should just start calling people and having a chat and recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but set an agenda first. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there was a point there that you made though around lived experience, and I think uh, something else which is useful, maybe maybe useful is the wrong word, but something else which is, I guess, um, interesting is when you hire people with lived experience into those roles, when you hire people as accessibility specialists who you know have to live and breathe it every day, it also helps when you're trying to convince people that things need to be accessible so one of the things that i've seen is um so nikki for example who took over as uh, head of accessibility um nikki is a wheelchair user and when nikki sits opposite somebody and argues for accessibility and they're saying they don't see the point in doing it they're arguing with somebody who it directly impacts and that becomes a much more difficult conversation to have than when you're sat there with somebody you know like me who doesn't necessarily look like i have any impairments on the surface um people just go oh well you know we don't have any users like that we don't see the, the point in this and sometimes you know when nikki sat opposite in the chair it becomes a much more difficult thing to wriggle out of um i hope nikki doesn't mind me saying that but i, I have seen it firsthand where um you know pe people have sort of not especially over teams um and things people don't always see the chair and they're arguing they don't see the point in it and it can you know, Nikki handles it very well, but you know they're essentially saying we don't care about um, fixing this for you, so to speak. So definitely, and I think, but even not necessarily to sort of just <laughs> throw it in people's faces. Um, I know that's not the intention, but it's also the awareness. They may not be aware, and it could just be um, blissful ignorance where they just think, "Oh no, surely not." You know, no one's going to be using this service, but. Um, yeah. It's an instant bit of awareness that actually, no, not just your users, but your employees need things to be yeah. accessible. Um, we, we hear that a lot. I mean, the amount of times I heard, oh, well, we don't have any users with accessibility needs. And it's this it's this sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy where people have products that are unaccessible and then they hire people in to use them. And one of the specifications, I guess, is you've got to be able to use a system. So if somebody uses a screen reader or voice control and it doesn't work, then they can't be hired into that role because they can't do it because the service isn't accessible. And then you end up in this 
perpetual um, state of oh well, we don't have any accessible uh, any users that require accessibility. And it's like, yeah, because you can't you can't hire them. You create an ableist environment where these people physically can't come in and do the role, and then you're using that to validate the fact that you don't need to do accessibility because you don't have any users that have accessibility. So there's this weird paradigm where people um, justify to themselves with this um, yeah circle of something other than a swear word that I can't think. Of. <laughs> Yes, I think we, we we're following, and I think it's you know it is it's an unfortunate thing to, to happen. It's like a catch twenty two though, isn't it? It's just sort of, oh no, we don't need that, but I need that. Um, okay, well, can you come in and fix it? It's like, but if I can't access it, then how can I actually even start to yeah. think about how to begin? Yeah, it's um, it's oh man, we could we could talk for days. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna just skip forward to like the sort of final thoughts, if that's okay, Craig. Um, yeah. So um. I guess if you if you're happy to sort of take this time to just share something of importance to you at the moment, either within sort of personal life or accessibility. I mean, obviously, theme of the podcast, but feel free to share if you're if you're putting together anything yourself. Yeah, um, I think something that is of real importance to me at the moment is, I think, trying to push for accessibility beyond compliance. Um, I think somehow compliance has become this end goal. It's become this. Um, people achieve compliance and pat themselves on the back and say that they're awesome because everything's accessible. But actually, compliance is probably just the bare minimum. That should be the first step to whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, I've seen a lot of compliance sites which just aren't usable. They're full of jargon and animations and parallax effects and bad content and all sorts of things. But they pass an audit because the audit's only looking for AA. And a lot of these things fit into the AAA criteria. So um, I'm doing a lot of... I'm doing a lot of talks at the moment. Um, I say a lot of talks. I'm, I've done like three, I think, but I'd like to do more. I guess now that I'm not working 70 hour weeks, I'd like to do more talks and things. But yeah. um, at the moment, I've been doing some talks on designing for neurodiversity. And I guess that's because people like me get ignored when people just focus on compliance. But I'm kind of hoping that I'm kind of hoping that it can change the way that people think about it because accessibility wasn't thought of at all. And it's definitely getting better now. People know they need to be compliant. But what I don't want is people just going, oh, well, we need to be compliant at the end. So I think I want to get people thinking, okay, well, once you're compliant, then what more can you do to make sure it works for everybody rather than just saying, we passed an audit, we're great, let's sort of be done. Um, I think W3C, it's worth probably mentioning that they are planning to address. They've, they've noticed that WCAG 2.1 and the way that it's currently being used doesn't do a lot to cater for people with cognitive issues or... Um, know neurodiversity and those sorts of uh, sorts of things they are looking to address that and work out 3.0 but that's probably like a decade away so in the short term it's like an interim measure they're working on this thing called koga or the cognitive accessibility guidelines um which is like a set of eight design principles which help cover off some of the stuff that is being missed by WCAG AA compliance so i'd like to get more people thinking about that i think if you go and look up the cognitive accessibility guidelines read through those they're just good design like you'll read it and you'll go yeah that makes sense none of this is a surprise but i think they're good to just remind people of things so it's get it to be compliant work with kogan i think it'll make things a lot better for a lot of people rather than just passing an audit um yeah. i've been planning on writing a book so maybe maybe now is the time and i'll just dump all of this stuff into there well, once I've done the transcript, I'll send it to you. You might have half a book ready <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the amount that we talk. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I just want to flip slightly back as well when you talk, because obviously talking about cognitive accessibility, there are obviously different uh, principles to making sure that you're um, accessible, not compliant, but accessible. And it's it's so easy to just sort of think of the, the standard sort of impairments that people may have, the audio, the visual. And when you've got people with lived experience, I think from just to sort of not protect, but see it from the employer's point of view as well. If you get people with one form of lived experience, so say someone that's blind that is um, a web developer, there's perfectly, you know, there's amazing web developers out there that are either have um, visual impairments or are, you know, registered blind. They've got the lived experience of interacting with web content with that, you know, impairment but they don't have the cognitive side of things. So it's, it's, it's sort of, I, I kind of understand why you might not, it won't encompass everything. As much as you can get people with some lived experience in certain areas, um, it won't cover all areas um, yeah. of impairment as well. But yeah, I would absolutely love to see more on the cognitive side of things. I think there is, like you say, there's more being done 
I'm seeing more and more stuff out there. Maybe it's you. Maybe I just keep seeing you post about it, um, which is, <laughs> is always a good thing. Um, yeah. But cool. So, I mean, we've we've rambled on. It's been an amazing chat. But I just, you know, I think um, to save people getting bored of my voice, not yours, because you've got an amazing accent. That's probably mine, my stupid accent. But... No, lovely accent. Mine. Well, I mean, that's that's quite rude, isn't it? I'm saying that you've got an accent, but maybe I've got an accent to you. Um, <laughs> So um, I'd like to finish each, each episode with a quote um, that sort of inspires listeners and, and just assure them that it's not all doom and gloom. I know we've spoken about imposter syndrome, about burnout, about mm. wearing too many hats like the one you've got on now. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, um, have you got any quotes that you've come across? That you... Yeah, um, I'm not sure that it will assure everybody that it's not all doom and gloom. Um, but one of my favorite quotes to inspire people over the years has been, um, I heard it from Molly Watt originally. Um, Molly was doing a talk at Camp Digital in Manchester several years ago. Um, and she used this quote, which was one in five people in the UK have a disability. It's the same number of people who have brown eyes. Imagine saying, sorry, you can't use our product because your eyes are the wrong color. Cause I think that's essentially what you're saying when you make things inaccessible. Um, the quote was originally about blue eyes, but since that talk the UK's eye demographic has changed weirdly um so brown eyes is now at 22 percent, which is roughly one in five so I've had to modify the original quote but it still works um so yeah I, I think when you say it like that you know nobody would turn around and say you're not using our service because your eyes are blue or brown or whatever but that's um that's essentially what we're doing when we make things not accessible the be all end all is if you're not making your products accessible to everyone or even attempting to do so, you're discriminating. It is no. discrimination. You, 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 you need to make sure that you're you're developing and designing with everyone in mind um, and not excluding people, even yeah. if they have brown eyes. Yeah, there's no gray areas. You either discriminate or you don't. You either do the work or you don't. Exactly. Perfect. Well, look forward to sort of hopefully continuing the conversation um moving forward staying in touch with you thank you so much for you know spending this this last hour with me and chatting about accessibility and hopefully it's going to raise some more uh, awareness out there um if you've got any links or anything like that if you've got any con you know social media that you want to share then we can say it now but i'll also add links and stuff um yeah um i'm just about five six seven on pretty much everything um but twitter is where i mainly talk about work if you look up uh, me on instagram you'll just find a lot of wildlife photos because I, I like to go out and take pictures of animals so yeah if you look me up on instagram there's gonna be nothing about accessibility but there will be a bunch of um pictures of animals which are alt text up so <laughs> i was just about to ask <laughs> yeah. make sure you've got that alt text yeah, there's always alt text on them amazing thank you so much craig and um yeah i look forward to staying in touch moving forward no worries thanks for having me cheers dude see you later